We talk a lot, a lot as people, I think people from every culture will see today, about this thing called the heart. Now, we talk sometimes about the heart as uh, the actual physical organ inside of our body, but most often we talk about the heart as this kind of center of who we are. Sometimes we talk about it as emotion. Sometimes we talk about it around decision-making, or sometimes we talk about the heart around our identity. But we often talk about this thing that we call the heart. You may remember uh, Roxette back in the day sang and prompted us to listen to our hearts. Listen to your heart. You guys remember that one? Oh, man, that was a good tune. That was a good tune. Of course, Bonnie Tyler had a total eclipse of the heart. It's important. Huey Lewis in the news wanted us to remember that the heart of rock and roll is still beating, right? We haven't lost the heart of rock. We may have now, but, but not then. Not then. Al Green and Annie Lennox teamed up to tell us what? Hey, just put a little love in your heart, right? Put a little love in your heart. We use all kinds of expressions about the heart. We'll refer to somebody as having a heart of gold. What do we mean if we say somebody has a heart of gold? It's a good person, right? Good person, the kind of person who would give you the shirt right off of their back. Have a heart to heart. Yeah, that's usually bad news, right? If somebody says, hey, we need to have a little heart to heart. I'm like, no, no, I'm gonna go do something else. You know what I mean? Like, I don't wanna have this conversation, whatever's happening next. Uh, you can have your heart set on something. You can have a change of heart. You could do something in a half-hearted way, which means I'm not giving it my all. We get all kinds of advice. We get advice from doctors about how to keep our heart healthy, right? Got to diet, exercise, eat more vegetables, switch the whole grain, or you can just eat a ton of Cheerios, evidently, heart healthy, right? And of course, the advice we get most often in our current culture is this one, follow your heart. What does that mean? Identify the deepest desire inside of you and just go do whatever that thing might be. But what we're going to see in Mark chapter 7 is Jesus answering this question, what is the heart and what does it actually do? So let's check it out. Mark chapter 7 verse 1. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding on to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vegetables and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribe asked him, that's Jesus, why do your disciples not walk in the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Verse six, and Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, Jesus lays down the hammer. You leave, he says, the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. What's going on in these first eight verses? Well, the Pharisees are on the scene. They come with these guys named the scribes. We've met both of these people before in our series, but let me give you a refresher just in case you forgot. The Pharisees are religious leaders of the day, and here's what they believe. 
They believe that God wants to restore his kingdom in Israel. And the way that that's going to happen is when the people of God strictly obey the law. And they believe if they could just get everybody to strictly obey this law, then God would restore this glory of Israel. And so in order to accomplish that, they created what we talked about before, this thing called the hedge of protection around the law. So they took God's law, God's commandments to his people, and they built other rules and traditions and commandments around those laws so you wouldn't even get close to breaking it. Maybe some of you remember this from your youth group days. Anybody, youth ministry days? And your youth pastor said, so here's the line, right? And so what you wanna do when you have the line is you don't wanna get close to the line, and so you draw another line, and then you draw another line, and then you draw another line, and then you draw another line. And at the end of the day, you're just like, oh, I get it. I just can't have any fun. That's what we're doing here. We got so many lines, we're not even getting close to the other line, right? But that's kind of what's going on with the Pharisees. Now, the scribes, are these legal scholars who know the Hebrew Bible incredibly well, and they weigh in all the time on the law. Now notice, these guys are from Jerusalem, so here's what happens. Jesus has been teaching in Capernaum, quite a following. The religious leaders in Capernaum can't quite handle all that Jesus is, so they call in the big dogs from Jerusalem. So the big dogs from Jerusalem show up, and they notice something about Jesus' disciples that they have been in the marketplace, and then they just start eating without washing their hands. Now, what they're not talking about is that Jesus' disciples have grimy or dirty hands, right? This isn't like preschool mom with some wipes and some hand sanitizer, making sure we get whatever that is off the hands of the kid before they eat. Instead, what this is, is this word defiled means unclean or ceremonially unclean. And so what's going on is the disciples have been walking around in the marketplace, and they're going to eat their food without washing their hands this ceremonial way. Here's what the Pharisees believed. That what happened in the marketplace was you might touch something or someone that was ceremonially unclean, which meant that you couldn't go into the synagogue and worship. And so since that might happen while you're in the marketplace, what you would need to do is wash your hands. Because imagine what would happen if you touched something that was unclean, and then you touched your bread, and your bread became unclean, and then you put the bread in your mouth, then your insides are unclean. And how are you going to scrub your insides? You see what's going on here? So they've created this whole new tradition. They call the traditions of the elders passed down from previous rabbis and teachers in order to prevent you from being what they would think maybe is perpetually unclean. And so they go, why don't your disciples obey this tradition? And then Jesus, as we've seen all the way through Mark, I think has maybe just had enough of this silliness, this foolishness from the Pharisees. And so he said, hey, I know who you are. Isaiah talked about you, you hypocrites. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book, right? Like how to like win uh, friends and influence people. Uh, this is not the way to do it, right? I mean, Jesus just lays down the law on them. And then he quotes from Isaiah and he says basically this, hey, you honor me with your lips, but your heart, the center of who you are is far, far from me. Now, Here's what Jesus is saying, and I don't want us to miss this. He's saying it's possible to look 
and act religious, but not know or love God. Think about that for a second. It is possible to look or act religious, but not know or love God. It is possible to follow all of the religious traditions, passed down generation after generation, It's possible to attend church or for them to attend the synagogue. It's possible to do all of the external things that would make you look like a person who is a lover of God and yet your heart or the very center of who you are be very, very far from him. He says, by quoting Isaiah, Jesus is saying, and this isn't new, right? This didn't just start with the Pharisees. He's saying, in fact, the prophet Isaiah, during the time of the exile, when God was speaking against the hearts of his people, said the very same thing about your forefathers. Very same thing. That it seems like you are serious about your faith, but underneath the surface, there's not a lot of substance here. Now, it's not just an old problem, not just an Isaiah problem. And not just a Jesus first century problem, Pharisee problem. It's a here and now problem. That we likewise have ways that we can look religious or look good or look wholesome or look moral. But underneath the surface be slowly rotting away. I don't know, some of you guys know that uh, we have this massive deck that was at our house when we purchased it, uh, which was awesome when we bought it. We're like, this deck is sweet. Man, I can't believe it. And then we quickly learned that the thing about a deck is you have to maintain it, which is a pain in the butt. And so... We were, have this set of stairs that we're like trying to replace boards and figure out like something's wrong. It's feeling like a little soft and squishy. It looks fine on the surface. But you know what we discovered? That below the surface, the stringers under the stairs that are actually what hold the stairs in place on our deck were rotting from the, like the middle, the, the, like underneath what you couldn't see. And so while we were trying to figure out, like, how do we fix these stair treads and make it where it doesn't feel like you're going to fall through, the problem was actually under the surface. This is what Jesus is saying. Your life can look good and fine from the outside, but when you start to look below the surface, there can be some cracks. And then this is the real hammer. Verse 8, Jesus says, actually, the, the thing is, you want the tradition more than you want to obey God. At the heart of who you are, he's saying to the Pharisees, what you really want is the tradition. You want to appear godly, but you don't want to know God. Or we could say it this way, you love the hedge around the law more than you love the giver of the law. Or You love the songs that you sing in church more than you love the person whom those songs are about. Or you love the Bible stories more than you love the God behind the Bible stories. Or or you love the appearance of reading your Bible more than you do actually applying it to your heart. It is possible to look religious and yet have a heart that is very, very 
far from God. Uh, so when I was uh, a teenager in the uh, 90s, um, uh, there was this popular movement that now everybody wants to critique. Now the label for that movement is purity culture. And it was around a couple of key things. One being this thing called True Love Weights. Anybody remember True Love Weights back in the day? You go to the Georgia Dome, right? Your parents would buy you a ring. You sign the card. You're like, I'm never going to have sex until I get married. Right? You guys remember that? And then, and then another key thing that that revolved around was a book by a guy named Joshua Harris. I don't know if you guys, anybody read this book. If you're probably my age, you probably read it or saw it. It's called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And here's the premise of the book. is that modern dating uh, didn't lead to healthy relationships and so Joshua Harris, who was like 20 at the time he published this book, he wrote it in his teen, teen years, like he's incredibly young, developed what we would now look back and go, probably a hedge around the law, a system for having better, healthier dating relationships uh, that were supposed to, in, motivated by good intentions, supposed to help teenagers date well, right? Here's the problem with purity culture. Here's what happened. We created this hedge around the law, and then here's what we believed. We believed that because I didn't have sex before I got married, then God was going to reward me with a great, fulfilling, amazing, unbelievable sex life after I got married. What's the problem? The reward for my obedience wasn't God. The reward for my obedience was what I actually wanted. Does that, does that make sense? And what I wanted was not to obey God. Brandon, 16-year-old Brandon at a True Love Waits rally, I was not motivated to obey God. I was motivated to go, oh, that makes sense. Maybe if I do it God's way, then God will owe me one, and he'll give me what I actually want. It'll just be down the road sometime. That is precisely what Jesus is talking about here. Now, put a pin in that because we're coming back to it later because some of you guys are real excited that I just was critical of purity culture and don't worry, we're coming back around to you in a few minutes. Verse nine. And then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You hear what he just said? You are exceptionally good at building a hedge or a fence around the law so that you don't even know who God is. You built your fence so high, God himself can't get in. That's what you're good at. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles your father or your mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer prevent him or permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition you have handed down and many such things that you do. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving them an example of what he's talking about. He's like, hey, I'm not just talking about the washing hands thing. Let me give you another example of where you value tradition over the actual commandment of God. It says there's this thing called Corbin, which just means dedicated to God. And so people could, at that time, dedicate some financial resources to God, maybe to go to the temple or local synagogue. And if they did that, they were free then from other obligations for those finances. And so just like if you have a really good accountant, right, your really good accountant is always looking for a loophole in the tax law so you can keep more of your money, Here's what's happening. 
and the Pharisees are signing off on it, is that people have found a loophole. They say, oh, if I have a problem with my parents, and I don't want to care for my parents in their old age, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that money and give it to God so I can dishonor my parents. And Jesus is looking at these religious leaders and going, hey, here's your problem. You are celebrating the fact that someone's obeying your tradition, but ignoring the fact that it's a loophole for them to actually disobey a very clear commandment from God. So then Jesus is saying the second thing, which maybe is more scary than the first thing. It is possible that obeying religious traditions will lead us to rejecting God. Think about how crazy that is. That it is very possible in obeying religious traditions by looking religious that we're not getting closer to God, but we're getting further away from God. It is possible to engage in church stuff and be disobedient. It is possible to come constantly looking for a loophole. That there are ways that you and I can justify our behavior by cloaking it in religious language or actions. And so we could tithe, give our money to God, to the church, but use that as a means to justify what else we spend our money on, right? It's like, no, no, God, I gave you the 10. You don't get to talk to me about the other 90. It's the same thing. Or our church attendance. I go to church every Sunday. That way, God, you don't get to talk to me about where I go the other six days of the week and what I do when I get there. You see how this works? That in actuality, for some of us obeying deep-seated religious traditions that were intended for our good, we find ways to use them not to draw us near to God, but to drive us further away. And how is that even possible? Verse 14. So after this encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus calls the crowd back over and he says this. He called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Jesus gathers this crowd and then drops a bomb on them. He says, you're thinking about this entire thing backwards. You're not defiled or ceremonially unclean or unacceptable before God because of what you put into your body, because you have unwashed hands or you ate per pork, but you're defiled by what comes out. Here's what Jesus is saying, and please don't miss this. The problem is not your diet. The problem is you. Not germs or dirt or pork or whoever you may have touched in the market. You, who you are, is what makes you acceptable to God or not. Your speech and your actions. Now, this just fries everybody's brain. Now, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper, but I need to do like a quick timeout. Sometimes in the Bible, we come to things that are maybe like interpretive challenges. Anybody notice something weird? Read verse 15. Where's verse 16? Yeah, for most of you, unless you're reading from the King James, you don't have a verse 16, right? Here's why. 
because the King James was translated from uh, some manuscripts uh, that were old. I'm sorry, that were younger, but there's a lot of them. Does that make sense? So when the King James was translated, there was a lot of manuscripts they hadn't found of the Greek New Testament yet. So then they found some additional manuscripts, right? And as they're going through them, what they notice is they don't have verse 16. Does that make sense? And so what your Bible, if you have a good translation, does, omits verse 16 because there's some doubt as to whether it's original or not. And if you have a good translation, at the bottom it has a note that would have the text of verse 16 and then explain to you exactly what I just told you, right? Now you go, that's weird. It is weird, but it should give you confidence in your Bible. Let me tell you why. One, because this means that really smart people are researching Greek manuscripts to reconstruct an incredibly faithful text. Two, and those people are telling you the truth. They're not trying to hide anything. And then three, in this particular instance, this is something Jesus said anyway, just more than likely somewhere else. Does that make sense? So this should give you extreme confidence in your Bible. Some of you look like you don't believe me, all right? Some of you look like you don't believe me, all right? Here's the thing. No one is trying to trick you with this Bible translation. They're just trying to be faithful to the text. And so as they have seen better evidence for what should be in or out, they've made changes. You know how many of these you find in the scripture? Just a handful. Just a handful. All right, is that good? Let's go. Jesus, verse 17. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And they said to him, then are you also without understanding? Uh, then he said to them, I'm sorry, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile them? Whatever they eat, whatever goes in their body can't make them unacceptable to God. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, right? Jesus is using a little middle school humor here. Thus, Mark says he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from without, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And all these evils come from within, and they defile a person. Again, the disciples are completely blown away. So they ask Jesus, what, what does this mean, this inside-outside? Jesus is like, no, here's the thing, man. It is your heart that corrupts you. It is the very center of who you are. In the Jewish world, the heart was a center for intellect and emotions and will. So Jesus is saying, what you think, what you feel, and what you decide is where this corruption or separation from God comes from. I love Ted Tripp. He says it this way. The heart is the control center of life. And Jesus is saying your real issue is your heart. Now, Jesus does something interesting here that Mark points out. You see the little parentheses? This is how we know that Mark is clarifying for us. And what Mark wants us to understand is that this is what the disciples are looking back on. This is one of the instances the disciples are looking back on and saying, this is how we know that Jesus was declaring all foods are clean, that we can eat whatever we want. Now, why is that important? 
Because Mark is doing some biblical interpretation that you and I should follow that's incredibly important for our modern, current time. What he is saying is the ceremonial law about who was clean and unclean and who, from the book of Leviticus, could enter into the temple or the tabernacle at that time, those laws are a signpost. Those laws were pointing us forward. Those laws were intended to show us that we were unclean and we needed help. Then help showed up. His name was Jesus. And so it changed our relationship to those Old Testament laws. But here's what Jesus does. Don't miss this. While Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to change your understanding. I'm the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Jesus holds on to the moral law. Do you see that in the text? And this, we get backwards all the time. Jesus is teaching, Mark thinks, and I think Mark's got a good idea, that the ceremonial law was intended to point us to our need for a savior. And so when we have limits for what we can eat and how we wash our hands and all of those things that we find in the Old Testament that everybody wants to talk about on Facebook as like a hammer, like boom, Christianity's wrong. You can't eat shellfish, right? Here's what he's saying. All of those things were a signpost pointing us forward to our need for a Messiah. Now that we have the Messiah, Jesus, we don't need those things anymore. But what we want to do is we go, since those things aren't true, then we're going to throw out the entire thing. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, here's what's still binding on you. The signpost that was pointing forward that's fulfilled in me, no longer binding. But what is binding is your conduct, your morality. All of those things that God taught to the Old, Test Old Testament believers way back in the day about the way that they act all still are binding. And so Jesus says, it's your heart that drives your behavior. What comes out of you is driven by something and that something is your heart. And he says, here's what comes out. Evil thoughts, that's scheming to do the wrong thing. Sexual immorality, which is just a biblical catchword for all sorts of sexual immorality, from pornography uh, to uh, sex outside of marriage. Jesus is saying that's wrong, and it comes out of your heart. Theft, taking something that doesn't belong to you. Murder, taking a life that doesn't belong to you, belongs to God. Adultery, having an unlawful sexual relationship with someone you're not married to. Coveting, this inner craving for more, more, more things that you don't have a right to. Wickedness, the spirit of maliciousness that expresses itself in action. Deceit, using your words to lure or bait someone into doing what you long for them to do. Sensuality. Living a morally de debaucherous life publicly is what that means. Envy, literally here, the phrase is an evil eye. And what it means is jealous or having a begrudging attitude towards others. Slander, which is injurious speech towards someone else. Pride, exalting yourself above other people. And foolishness, which is moral senselessness. And all of this, Jesus says, comes from one source, your heart the very center of who you are. All right, let me show you something. Uh, we're gonna put this up on the screen. This is a, should be a paradigm shifter for most of us. Uh, we believe that the world works something like this. So there, this is you, all right? This is the best rendition, rendering of you I could find. I'm, it looks like every single one of you. I think we did a good job. 
And you see these arrows, here's what we often believe. We believe what shapes our life the most significantly is what Ted Tripp calls shaping influences, right? And so my family growing up shapes me, it does. Or where I go to school shapes me. Or my level of education shapes me. And we think that these kind of different things that are outside of us shape who we are in significant ways, and they do. But what Jesus is teaching is actually another paradigm. That these shaping influences are important, but check this out. But he's saying what actually drives who you are comes from the heart. And that what comes out of you is an indication of what is inside of you. Which is why you can send your kid to private school and they can still be rebellious. Because a private school isn't going to suck the rebellion out of their heart. You can find a way to be rebellious in whatever shaping influence you have. Which is why sometimes we look at kids who've grown up in homes and we go, man, what perfect parents. What happened? What happened is it wasn't their family environment, it was their heart. And this heart drives our behavior. And according to Jesus, the most deadly thing in your life isn't outside of you, but inside of you. Now, there are two dangers here. The first one is the danger that Jesus explicitly identifies for the Pharisees. That we would live lives ignoring our hearts. We would make these external things more important. We would believe that education is going to save us or church attendance is going to save us or what's actually going to change us is finding a new spouse or whatever else might be on the outside. And so we believe those things, operate in those things, and we find incredible disappointment and a lack of transformation because we're focusing on externals. Does that make sense? Ignoring our very heart. And you can find these sort of outside, inward approaches in every area of life. Religion for sure, which we've already talked about, but isn't this politics? That we honestly believe if we just get all the right people who are on the right in elected office, then it's going to save our society? Or we believe if we just get progressive leftists, then everybody's going to be nice and kind to each other? It's just another form. It can be another form of exactly what we're talking about in the text. We believe this about progress. This is why World War II was so damaging culturally because people had begun to believe if we just educate correctly or we just obey and follow the science, if we just walk out our enlightenment, then everything is going to be fine. And then this dude shows up on the scene killing millions and millions and millions of people inside what is supposed to be a progressive modern society. This is an undoing of the West because it showed. Yeah, I mean, you can change all the outside externals that you want. But the heart is what drives your behavior. We could believe this about capitalism or socialism, popular culture. We could even believe this about Christian ministry. I love that Spurgeon would say to his students, don't preach the gospel in order to save your soul. You're counting on something external to solve something that it can't solve. So there is a danger there for all of us to ignore our heart and focus on externals. There's another danger, which I think Jesus would teach about in a slightly different way if he was talking to our culture right now. 
So you remember, heart drives behavior, and our danger is probably more that we ignore our actions. That we excuse our external actions by saying, that's not who I really am. That's not my identity. I have a good heart. Even though I did these things, I'm still a good person. And so let me be very clear today. Sexual immorality, according to Jesus, is an indication that you have a heart problem. And according to Jesus, is inexcusable. So fellas, when you crank on your computer and pull up pornography, let me be very clear. Jesus is not just saying that that is wrong. He's saying it's an indication of a deeper wrong, a corruption at the very center of who you are. That when we steal from our work, that Jesus isn't just saying that's an excusable behavior that isn't a reflection on who we are. Jesus is saying that's exactly who you are. That that comes out of a broken heart. So, for some of us who have walked through looking back at the 90s impurity culture and mocked what they taught us, let us be very careful that we don't deny what Jesus is teaching in this passage. The passage doesn't say there was something wrong with the morality, only the approach In our longing to justify ourselves, what we're most often guilty of is divorcing our heart from our actions so we can continue to lie to ourselves about who we really are. And Jesus is saying, no, it's your heart that drives you. And if you've been malicious at work, that's not somebody else's fault. That's because something is broken inside of you. And if you've been slanderous on social media, that's not someone else's fault. That's because something is deeply broken inside of you. That we have at the very heart of who we are, rebellion and pride, driven by a need to be accepted, and we go to great lengths to satisfy those desires of our hearts. Which is why the Bible teaches something that's very counter to popular culture. The way to happiness or fulfillment is not by following your heart. It's by accurately diagnosing your heart and coming to the one person who can actually fix it. So you go, well, Brandon, how does that work? How do I change my heart? How do I rearrange the very center of me? Mark's doing two things in the passage. The first one is he's causing us to look back, right? Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, and Mark is saying, hey, let's look back, backwards, and see that this is a common problem that has plagued all people, even God's people who had God's law. This is Ezekiel. Another prophet says in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. Here, here's what Ezekiel the prophet is saying. It's like, yeah, we got a heart issue. And here's what God is saying. The only way to solve the heart issue is for God to show up and solve the heart issue. So Mark is saying, if you want to see the solution, you got to look back. 
You've got to look back and see that this constant problem has been a theme all the way through the Old Testament where over and over again people are saying, how do I solve the problem of my heart? And the hope all the way through the Old Testament scriptures is that God himself was going to solve the problem. And then you notice Mark doesn't resolve this. This story just ends. He moves on to something else. I think because he wants us to look forward. That the resolution of our heart problems is found not just in understanding this teaching of Jesus, but knowing the story of Jesus. That Jesus, this rabbi and teacher, if we get to the end of Mark's gospel, laid down his life for us on the cross, paying in full the penalty that our heart sins deserve. That Jesus rose from the dead. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anybody who's identified himself with Christ, anybody joined himself with Christ, what he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. He's restating Isaiah. He's saying, here's what happens when you come to believe in Jesus. God does something about your heart problem, and what he does is he takes the old heart out, this corrupt to the core, and gives you a new one. And so our only hope Everybody in this room and watching online, our only hope to solve what is wrong at the very center of us is not some sort of shaping external influence. Our only hope is to submit our lives to Jesus. To lay down our lives before Jesus. To ask Jesus to give us a new heart and a new life. That's our hope. The Bible uses two words to describe this. The first one is repentance, which just means to change our mind, to have a heart level change. And so you and I come to a place where we go, hey, you know what's wrong with me? It's not the fact that I cussed at my wife this morning. It's the fact that I have anger residing in the very center of who I am. And I can't do anything about that, but I believe that Jesus can. It's repentance. And then faith is the second word that the Bible uses, which is just another way of saying this. I am banking all my hopes on Jesus and Jesus alone. So for some of us today who've never trusted Christ, this may be the most important thing that you've ever heard. Because everybody around you is trying to convince you that what's wrong with you is circumstantial. And Jesus is saying something way worse than that, way harder to take, way more harsh. He's saying, actually, what's wrong with you is your heart, the very center of who you are. But in the same breath, Jesus is also saying, and guess what? That's what I came to fix. That's what I came to solve. That's what I came to do, to change you at a heart level. So maybe today is a day for some of you who have yet to trust in Christ, that you trust in Jesus. And then for those of us who are believers, I love this is what Luther says. I say it all the time. First of the 95 Theses is this, that when the Lord Jesus commanded us to repent, he meant that all of the Christian life would be one of repentance. And so you know the mark of a Christian is constant repentance. Is seeing our outward actions not trying to justify them, 
but going, I acted in this way because I'm a rebellious person and what I need is to repent of that and trust Jesus. I acted this way because I thrive off other people's acceptance and what I need at a heart level is the reminder that I've been accepted by Jesus. And the pathway forward for you and me is not perfection. Nobody at Mercy Hill is demanding perfection of you. What we are asking of you is this. Would you walk in repentance, seeing your outward action as a reflection of your heart, and be willing to change your mind? Be willing to resubmit your heart to Jesus, the true king. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to do the invitation slightly different today. Mitchell's going to come. Guys are going to come. Get ready to lead us in worship. Here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> uh, my church growing up, where I did the True Love Waits rally, yeah, which I, I don't regret a lot of that. I want to be very clear about that. A lot of that was really good for me. I grew up in a really great church. But one of the things my very traditional church growing up in would invite people to do at the end of the service is to come forward and pray at the altar. We have a temporary stage on a gym floor. It's not super fancy. But here's the deal. Sometimes repentance of the heart requires a physical posture. Sometimes what you and I need to reinforce what's going on in our hearts is to actually physically respond. And so I'm going to pray for you. And these guys are going to lead us in worship. And here's the invitation. If today you have diagnosed your heart in some way and found some need of repentance, and if today as you are praying through that where you are, you feel the pull of God to something maybe a little bit more than just sitting in your seat, we're just going to ask you to respond. There's nothing special about this space. With this space, we're just providing for you to it, for it to be an accurate outward reflection of what's going on in your heart. Does that make sense? So I know this is a little out of our comfort zone. We don't do this often. But I just thought today what I needed was this. And maybe today what you need is that. So let me pray for us, and then you respond accordingly.